Clinton and Obama wanted to come, and and Stephen had these funny conversations. Stephen Spielberg to, uh, with Daniel, in which he would have to talk around the issue. So it went something like, "Mr. President, uh, I I wanted to let you know that the current." president of the United States would love to come and visit as we try to find our way to passing this this amendment. And then Daniel would say, no, I, I don't think that would be a good idea, Skipper. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. A couple housekeeping things. I want to recommend that you go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com to get on the mailing list. I rarely send out emails. And when I do, it's going to have a typo in it. So you can feel better when you um, have an autocorrect fail. But the reason I'm encouraging you to do it is because we only have a couple more episodes here with Slate. And then we will be moving on. And I have some exciting news. So definitely get on the mailing list. You're like, wait, this is my first time tuning in. It is. All right. Employee of the Month is all about careers. When you go to employeeofthemonthshow.com, you'll be like, oh my God, there's Lin-Manuel Miranda, there's Rachel Maddow, there's Gloria Steinem, there's Zadie Smith. Yes, you can listen to interviews with all of these fantastic folks. In this edition of Employee of the Month, I sit down with Jill Sobiel and Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson is an extraordinary screenwriter, playwright, actor, and director. If you don't recognize him, that's because he is such an exceptional actor. He's considered a character actor, although he's also now a leading man because the Coen brothers, who he has frequently worked with and we talk about, um, cast him as a lead in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He was also in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which you may know the soundtrack, um, which he helped earn them a Grammy for. And he's also been in The Watchmen, Boardwalk Empire, and The Incredible Hulk, Minority Report, Leaves of Grass, Fantastic Four, Lincoln, The Thin Red Line, and of course, Scooby-Doo 2. His latest work, Socrates, a play that he wrote, is premiering at the Public Theater. Go see it. That's, of course, where Employee of the Month show was live for many, many years. And it stars Michael Stuhlbarg, who we talk about, and is directed by the Tony-winning director, Doug Hughes. It was so wonderful to be able to talk about everything from democracy to how we deal with mortality and more. Here's my interview with the one and only Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson, I'm so thrilled to have you here. You've been up for so many awards. This must be thrilling to finally get the Employee of the Month award. It is finally. Uh... I uh, can take that space on the mantle. <laughs> um, I'm excited about Socrates, which is the the play that you recently, most recently wrote, uh, that's going to be premiering at the Public Theater, which is where Employee of the Month um, was live for many, many years. And I know you studied the classics in, in college, but I'm curious, what drew you to do Socrates now, or maybe you've been working on it for, um, maybe you've been working on it since the fourth century? Uh, close. I've been working on this iteration of it for about three years, but I tried to write this play about 30 years ago when I was in drama school. At Juilliard. Yes. And I had studied classics in college. At Brown. Had ri- right. And uh, with this wonderful professor named Martha Nussbaum. Oh, who's very famous. Yes. Yeah. And I decided while I was studying Socrates uh, that should I ever have the opportunity, I would want to write a play about his life and an eventual death at the hands of the Athenians. So I decided to do that while I was in grad school, and I failed. I, I failed spectacularly. Uh, one summer in an attempt to organize his life into an evening of theater. And I failed because I just didn't have any respect, whether it was the the maturity as a person, the maturity as a storyteller, uh, the maturity as an actor to imagine how he might speak so that I could write the role, uh, the understanding of not only Athenian history, but the currents of history in a larger sense, to be able to take on such a big subject. But in any case, 30 years later, uh, I was working on a movie in 
Louisiana, Fantastic Four, funnily enough. And I, two of my sons and my wife and I uh, met in New Orleans because I'd been in Baton Rouge, and they flew to New Orleans, and, and we were in a bookstore, and I saw a, a book about Seneca. And I picked it up and read it, and it, it jogged the notion of writing a play about Socrates loose from my memory, and I decided to try again. The timeliness of it you know, is very evocative, right? That that Athens was falling apart uh, when we look at, at Socrates, or I assume when, when the play takes place. Yes, it's it was a time of turmoil. And as it's, I stayed in the play in the mouth of Socrates, uh, that a time of an Athens divided. And because our democracy seems to, to be in a, a fragile state, which is what was happening then, I was curious, how much do you apply what's going on today into the play? Well, I started writing the play before our current president had even announced uh, his candidacy for the Republican primary. So he hadn't yet descended the escalator into the lobby of Trump Tower. But obviously the relevance of the the play uh, began to take on a new form. And so, yes, indeed, I was able to write to that in the, in the play to a degree, but it wasn't the impetus for the play. Uh, what, what, what was the impetus for, the, for writing Socrates the second time for you? Round two of Socrates. It what was we- the same in- impetus that interested me in writing it in the first place. It's one of the great historical tales that there there is. Uh, and to explore the question as to why this polity would murder this man. Uh, and the only reason he wasn't publicly executed is because Plato paid for the hemlock. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So by all intents and purposes, he he might actually have been publicly executed, which at that time was done um, by a method called bloodless crucifixion. So he would have been strapped to a board and strangled to death in public for all to see. That was the way that it was done. But Plato saved him from that, uh, which is why he ended up drinking the hemlock in his cell, because Plato paid for it. Plato was a very wealthy man. Socrates was not. And answering that question, exploring that question, and delving in to this extraordinary life and the way that it ended seemed uh, just simply irresistible to me, particularly when you fold into it all the ideas that this man explored in his life. And then you start to understand the more deeply you explore the actual historical figure of Socrates, that in this life of pursuing knowledge, he claims never to have come up with a single truth. Well, and that the idea that there are multiple truths, right? Because his his own story is told by so many different perspectives. And in fact, you have 16 characters in this play. Oh, far, 16 actors okay. and probably about, I don't know, 40 characters. Maybe 50. But it but it speaks to the fundamental heart of Socrates in many ways, I think. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about Socrates in, in part because he referred to being alive as a sickness. Mm-hmm. And so much of your work, I think, focuses on mortality and also the question of leading a virtuous life and how one does that when wrestling these two. Yes. Now, in terms of Socrates seeing life as a sickness, we have to be very careful because the Socrates passed down to us uh, through the dialogues, mainly of Plato, but also Xenophon, is not always reliable uh, because there's this constant tension in reading, particularly the dialogues of Plato. Uh, There's a constant tension as to whether what Socrates the character in the dialogues of Plato is saying was actually is actually accurate to the historical figure 
of Socrates and what is Plato putting his ideas into the mouth of Socrates. And I would argue that the notion of life as a sickness is one of those. I would like to think that Socrates relished life, that life provided the best way for a human being to pursue an ethical improvement of oneself, and that a life devoted to that was the best life worth living. Uh, and he famously said uh, that the unexamined life is not worth living. It's a, that's a very loose translation. I do a much better job in the play uh, <laughs> of exploring that, but that's the shorthand of it. And so I, I can't square how that character would see life as a sickness. But I certainly can understand how Plato, who believed uh, in this almost mystical world of forms, would have construed life as a sickness. You reunited with um, Stolberg. Michael, yes. Um, who people may know from A Serious Man, Pillow Man, uh, Boardwalk Empire as well. Were you involved in casting him? Yes. Uh, in, in theater, the playwright for the premiere gets is, is as much a part of casting as the director. And I should mention, since I'm bringing up the director, that this play is directed by Doug Hughes, who has directed every play I've written that's been produced. He is a, 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 a Tony-winning director for Doubt. And Tony-nominated, I believe, for Frozen, and, and also a great friend of mine and collaborator for the last, uh, uh, actually since 1993, I believe. So uh, we, we've, we've known each other a long time. And yes, I met Michael Stuhlbarg uh, at Juilliard in 1988, which is when he came there in the first year, and I was in my third year. Um, and... Uh, Effectively, he and I have been pretty much on and off, off and on collaborating ever since. He's, uh, I, I think, the as extraordinary an, an actor uh, in in my generation as there is. I'm, I'm not an actor, and yet I envy his career because he's a consummate chameleon. Yes. And so that he can still seemingly, at least to me on the outside, lead a, a rather relatively normal life where people may not know who he is and still have his pick of parts. That's exactly the sort of life Michael leads, although I think that the obscurity you describe is becoming <laughs> less and less a reality it, right now. How is fame for you? I was curious. Um, are you able to lead a, a relatively sane life or... I lead a relatively sane life, but I stay in a lot. Um, and um, I've been married for uh, coming up on 25 years, and my wife and I have three boys, and I'm a very engaged husband and father. And so generally I'd prefer just to stay home and be with my family since my career takes me away uh, so frequently. And so I just don't circulate out there a lot. Uh, when I do, um, it, it <laughs> I guess at this point, what I find funny is that I've played so many different roles with so um, many varying degrees of facial hair that whatever beard I happen to be sporting at the time determines why I'm recognized. <laughs> uh, luckily, right now, I'm doing this role um, that hasn't come out yet. It's on uh, the HBO uh, series that's going to come out in the fall, Watchmen. Yes. And I have this handlebar or this uh, horseshoe-type mustache that I've never had in a movie before. And so I'm... Uh, I get to live in some uh, a little bit more obscurity than usual. You almost have mutton chops. Your yes. beard is 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 so um, particularly classic right now. If you want to go out for any, uh, I don't know, roles, uh, the westerns, for example, you could really nail them. I yes, think, right exactly. Now. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the gray zone. That that is really how I I got to meet you. Um, it was a play and then a film, and. 
you talk about this later in, in another uh, film that you wrote, or excuse me, I think you directed. You, you speak about examining violence versus encouraging it in reference to O. I remember you wrote this mm-hmm. great article right. about that. Um, but it comes up as well in The Gray Zone. If you can tell folks a little bit about the Sander Commando and, and your relationship to The Gray Zone. Yes, the Zandra Commando were Jews in the death camps who were co-opted by the Nazis into helping out in the extermination process. Now, not to mislead, there was they weren't pouring Zyklon B into the showers, but they helped usher fellow Jews into the showers, often telling them that they were showers, not revealing what the real purpose was. Um, and they were given the choice. They would either be killed or do this work. And if they did this work, they were allowed to some degree to loot the perishable belongings of the dead. So cigarettes, food, uh, articles of clothing were theirs to a degree for the taking. Uh, They were usually killed after three to four months and a new group brought in. I read about the Zondra Commandos in an essay in Primo Levi's book, The Drowned and the Saved, and the essay was called The Gray Zone because Primo Levi saw this as a gray zone between the ethical extremes of black and white, good and evil. And he used this to examine the degrees of culpability that he perceived including in himself, of survival. Because he saw survival in the extremes of the Holocaust as a zero-sum game, meaning that if you survived, probably somebody else was going to perish. And even though the Jews didn't create this scenario, they were forced to participate in it. And I wanted to ask, as a filmmaker, you're a director, you're a writer, and you're an actor, and you've been in some some pretty bloody uh, films and television shows, and you've written some extremely bleak ones as as well. Um, how do you deal with examining violence versus encouraging it? D- do you question, like, am I propagating something further, or am I helping explore it, or does that come up at all? Well, I think it's a, it's its own question in the in the visual media, in particular film, for reasons you'd have to bring on a film theorist. I wouldn't want to say it. Uh, There's a way in which we like to touch our fears in film. Uh, Coen Brothers films, and they do violence, I think, better than anyone, make us, they terrify us, and then sometimes the violence makes us laugh in a way that is unique to cinema. And I guess this is all my long-winded way of answering your question and saying that I embrace that. Now, I do not embrace gratuitous violence, and I don't participate in those sorts of movies as an actor, and I certainly don't write those sorts of movies. I think there has to be a point to it. Now, sometimes that point is to laugh. In the movie I most recently did with the Coen brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This was your first starring role and your third, well, excuse me, your second Coen brothers film. You were almost almost three, and I'm sure there will be three. I hope so. Um, uh, And and in that movie, uh, I I kill a lot of people and in very, very, very violent ways. It's extreme violence, uh, but it's funny and and almost intention. It's intentionally cartoony. They made a it's 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 almost like a live action cartoon. When I shoot one guy, uh, uh, a a beam of light comes through his body. If you watch carefully uh, through the bullet hole, it's that cartoony. And I think that that. Really, only in cinema um, could you do that, or only in a cartoon could you do that. It's a, it's an immersive visual gag. Um, 
And again, I'm not a film theorist, but I'm interested in the dream state in which we find something so horrific funny. You and the Coen brothers have have so much in common, and I believe you are friends. Um, How were you able to get them your very first film? And do you remember the notes they gave you? I do. Uh, I was able to get them the very first film because it was produced um, uh, by my brother and um, this woman named Wendy Ettinger. Uh, Wendy Ettinger used to be a casting director, and she's also uh, a movie producer. She produced my first film with my brother, uh, Eye of God, but she also produced The War Room, um, Mm. the Academy Award, uh, I think, winning documentary. Uh, It was at least nominated. I know that. Uh, And she was friends with the Coen brothers, and she got them to watch my first movie. And I became friends with them as a result of that. And, yes, I remember their their uh, responses really well, uh, particularly Ethan's. Uh, Ethan has a very peculiar way of looking at the world and uh, very peculiar tastes. And he really liked the more Flannery O'Connor aspects of <laughs> of my first um, film. There's a character, Martha Plimpton plays a character who has a glass eye. And there's a scene in which she removes her eye and presents it uh, to this young boy as this act of vulnerability and generosity. And uh, that was Ethan's favorite part of the movie, that moment. Uh, and I, I realized, okay, if, if, if I'm really lucky, I'm going to be friends with these guys for my entire life. And that's what it is, has ended up happening, at least so far. I love Martha Plimpton. She's been on the show twice, and we were just joking about how uh, Valley Girl was, she was saying, was her favorite movie of her youth. We were, because <laughs> I had posted something about it. Um, with the Coen brothers, they are meticulous about sound. And I wanted to ask, because you have a special relationship with music as well, um, what was it like singing with. Starting with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and then, of course, with Buster Scrubs. Um, had you sung before these films? I had. I, I Well, I like anybody, uh, I sang growing up uh, whenever I could, just uh, along with the radio and in the shower and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I grew up in Oklahoma and loved country music, and, and so that was— that that was really my that was the vernacular in which I really learned to to sing, uh, imitating country music stars. But then when I went to drama school, we we took singing formally, and we had this wonderful teacher named Debbie Lapidus. And so I I got more serious about singing in drama school because we had to. And then when Joel and Ethan offered me "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." And the opportunity to sing arose. I took it, and and then they wrote Buster Scruggs with that in mind, uh, knowing that I was going to play the part. And so they wrote this singing killer outlaw in the old west for me to play. So I, I've been very lucky in that regard. But other than one play, which was this avant-garde play at Soho Rep, uh, Dracula, written by Mac Wellman, I've never sung professionally other than in the Coen Brothers movies. You've also worked with Steven Spielberg twice, and I was so curious. I heard on Lincoln that um, there were certain rules, like you weren't allowed to wear shorts. Um, I wanted to hear who, if that was the case, that there were certain things you weren't allowed to do on set, and if you could elucidate why. Yeah, that came from Daniel Day-Lewis. The famous cobbler. uh, Whom we, (laughs) exactly, uh, whom we were instructed to call the president. Mr. President, never by his name. He was always in character. And no one was allowed to wear shorts or – and this, this, this is mainly the crew because we were all obviously in costume, the actors. So It'd be kind of funny right. if you're doing a film <laughs> about Lincoln and, and you're in short shorts. You're in uh, Daisy Dukes. So no one was allowed to wear shorts or tennis shoes or – T-shirts with any logos or markings on them. Uh, nobody was ar- allowed to bring paper cups uh, onto the set. Nobody was allowed to bring cell phones or cameras of any sort. 
any anachronisms. Nothing was it, it, the the set needed to be other than obviously the apparatus of filming the movie, so the lights and the the camera uh, and C stands and microphones, etc., and monitors. Those were obviously allowed because you can't make a movie without them. But there was you were not allowed to bring anything onto the set that wasn't necessary to the filming that read as modern. And I loved it. I, I thought it was a, a wonderfully focusing, it, it just focused the whole enterprise, and I think it added to the film. And working with Daniel Day-Lewis uh, changed the way I think about acting. How? Well, it just I liken it to if one were a painter uh, in 19... 19- 30 or 1925 or, uh, and you were invited over to watch uh, Picasso or Matisse. It was watching a once in a generation talent, quintessential talent, do what he does. And you do it too, but this is a whole other level at which the work can occur. His transformation was molecular. It really, I, I, you couldn't see the man. You couldn't see Daniel Day-Lewis inside of this incarnation of Abraham Lincoln. And what's more, you couldn't see any artifice in the creation of Lincoln. It just was Lincoln. And the demands that he placed on the production in terms of what he wanted people to wear and how he didn't want to be distracted were not done to me in a tyrannical or gratuitous way. It was utterly benign. Is it true that Obama was not allowed on this? That's correct. Uh, And Clinton. Clinton and Obama wanted to come and, and Stephen had these funny conversations. Steven Spielberg. To, uh, with Daniel, in which he would have to talk around the issue. So it went something like, Mr. President, uh, I, I wanted to let you know that the current president of the United States would love to come and visit as we try to find our way to passing this, this amendment to uh, emancipate the slaves. And then Daniel would say, no, I... I don't think that would be a good idea, Skipper, because he, uh, Daniel called Spielberg Skipper. <laughs> so that's how that went. That's incredible. We're going to take a break from the episode so I can tell you a little bit about our sponsor. You started in stand-up, and as an outsider, when I look at your work, when I look at the Coen Brothers' works, one thing that I love coming from comedy is that they really root it in reality, and that it's not comedy for the sake of comedy. It's um, with has deeper subtext and, and context within it. Yes. How important is comedy to you when you're writing? Well, comedy is incredibly important to me, and I pursued stand-up comedy before I went to drama school, and I was just bad at it. So I, I, I was good enough, barely good enough, to get on stage in Los Angeles uh, at places like the Laugh Factory and the Improv and the Comedy Store. But ultimately, I was just one rung above terrible, I would say. And Everything I did felt derivative. In other words, I was imitating other comics, and it was a pale imitation. And it seemed to me that the road to finding my own voice was not just too long, but endless. In other words, I'd never get there. I was never going to be what the great comics are, like Lou Black— or who's a dear friend of mine and employee of the month. Oh, he's I love Lou and he's uh, an ex- extraordinary person. Um and and what makes Lou among 
a lot of other qualities so special is that there's no one else who does what he does. And so he at once moved comedy forward and did some, but something nobody else has done. So the, so the, so his comedy is both vertical and horizontal. So he, he does, moves it forward, does something else nobody else has done at the same time. And Dave Chappelle, these, Chris Rock, uh, Robin Williams, this is what the great comics have done. And it was clear to me that I was not going to be able to get there. I just looked out and it just seemed like I was too distracted by what others were doing. I was imitative. And that's when I decided to go to drama school and not pursue stand-up comedy. But an interest in comedy never left me. I still think it's... I, I think it's so important for someone who has had such an education as yourself going to Brown, going to Juilliard, to do stand-up and to do stand-up, particularly in the era that you did stand-up and, and when I did stand-up, because it is such a melting pot. And we all live in bubbles. There's the comedy bubble where comedians may get very famous and become actors and not understand that they actually don't necessarily know how to act. They can be uh, themselves but exaggerated. So I think it's important for them to see the the bubble that I would say that you live in, which is amongst consummate you know actors um, who have been really trained in this art form. And on the flip side, and I, I suppose I'm identifying with you in this way of, of having had the privilege of being quite educated and loving education in, in the sort of uh, academic arena. I think there's something really fabulous about going to stand up and being in this world where it is so provincial and so crazy, particularly when you and I were doing it, that the, you know, the sexism or the homophobia or the racism were, were so bananas. It was an extraordinary time to to be doing comedy. And I would say that some of the stuff that I did back then, not really understanding how harmful, and you talk about racism and homophobia, uh, it would not wash right now, nor should it. I, I, should, I should point out to the audience, however, that you were somewhat successful as a comic. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm a, I got hit after a set at Boston Comedy Club for no reason by a comic who was both professionally much larger than I am and also uh, physically larger. And you cannot articulate that to someone else. And coming from the world that I did where I got to, you know, do research at Harvard and Cornell, it's even harder to explain that you're getting on stage after someone who was incarcerated and you're going up before someone who should be incarcerated. Well, but comics like you who were actually successful at it, or Mark Maron uh, is another example, uh, that's a a level of, of... of bravery and acuity that I just didn't achieve. And I really, truly admire that. Um, uh, no I no comedian say, ever wants to hear that they were brave. <laughs> oh, is that, that's very, very funny. And I can see why. Um, I can understand why. Uh, but I also have to say that because I only ever got on stage, I was at the bottom of the ladder every time I performed, uh, and so I would have to wait around. I'd have to get there to the club at around 9.30, 10, and then I would always have to be ready to go on. But if somebody else came who was up the ladder from me, they would bump me. And so I would usually get there at around 9.30 or 10 after working all day uh, at a bakery in Venice, which was its own (laughs) funny reality uh and um and then not get on until after midnight but i got to hang out as a result with comics uh all night and these really were some of the most dark miserable people i've ever met back then i don't know what the reality is now and misanthropic yes misanthropic uh bitter angry um uh, it 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 was a whole other level of cynicism pessimism and bitter hatred that was fueling the comedy uh i i just i found it astonishing and also the alcoholism and cocaine abuse it was it was breathtaking 
And I'm glad I was exposed to it. But at the same time, it also warned me away from it as a field because I just knew that getting nowhere, and I felt that I was going to get nowhere because I just didn't have the access to an original voice as a comic that those of you who were successful at it had. Well, I wasn't either. I mean, the, the whole point is that you have to be able to write original material every year for years and years and years. Can you do that? And I, the answer for me is no. Can I write a new special every year? No. And the greatest comics can. Um, you know, the Coen brothers are so good at talking about death and uh, are we? Is this life meant to distract us from it? Are are is it an allowing us to be more comfortable and accept it's part of life? I was curious for yourself. Um, has acting in this films? We spoke a little bit about violence before, and also about um, the cathartic nature of theater and and film and and the arts. Um, has it helped you deal with uh, death as part of life? Uh, Has acting and writing and directing, has being part of of the arts, you know, helped you sort of, I don't know if embrace death, but at least accept its reality? It's a distraction, um, which I think is, that's our truth, really. Uh, I I think pretty much everything we do is somehow related to that distraction, and I don't think I'm unique in this regard. I think, really, I think that's what we're all, that's what each of us is up to, just if, if, if you're asking my opinion. Uh, and I love what I do. I love what I do professionally, and I love my family. Uh, and so uh, this getting up every day and living a life that, nourishes myself spiritually and professionally is really what it's all about. And yes, that's a distraction from mortality. Uh, I, I, I couldn't think of a, of, a, of a better way to put it, except maybe rather than a distraction, it's a putting off of. And I don't ever want to stop this. Uh, and I want to devour every bit of it as I can. Um, I am, again, not uniquely, I think this is what we're all about uh, in, in, our most, in our most healthy forms. We're livers of life uh, in, in as deep a way as is possible. And that's why I love the ancient thinkers, because at its incipient level, philosophy was really about really two, it had two foci. It was how do you live an ethical life and how does the world work? And getting up uh, every day and um, exploring that uh, through living the richest life possible without hurting others and with the pursuit of improving yourself and those around you, uh, I just don't ever want to stop doing that. And I feel like right now in my life, I get to do it both professionally by playing roles and writing plays and making movies, and I get to do it as a husband and father. Um, you have a, a fascinating family history. You brought up family, and you're Mother, I believe, was a first-generation immigrant. You're a product of what I call a mixed marriage because my family is half German Jewish, uh, half stereotypical Ashkenazi. You know, even though Germans are obviously Ashkenazi ultimately too. But um, and then you married a, a, someone who you know is of a different faith. And and I, I really wanted to hear about your relationship to faith and spirituality. Well, I grew up uh, in a conservative Jewish household in Tulsa, Oklahoma. As one does. As one does, exactly. Uh, and when I say conservative Jewish uh, household, I don't mean politically conservative. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, there was Orthodox, conservative, and Reformed. Uh, and they're, it's pretty self-explanatory, conservative being somewhere in between Reformed and Orthodox, just to simplify it. 
and so I had a traditional Jewish upbringing for the middle of the country, uh, short of, of of being raised Orthodox. Uh, and I certainly believed in God pretty much up until I made the gray zone and read Primo Levi. And that shook my faith. Uh, and I, I guess I became an atheist, but now I've backed off that and I'm an agnostic wimp uh, because I just, I can't pretend to know one way or the other. Uh, so I'm the guy that Richard Dawkins reviles. Uh, he calls the agnostics the real wimps uh, because at least to have faith shows some degree of of uh, of boldness, um, just as as atheism does. But uh, so I guess that's where I am with my faith in the traditional sense of a relationship to God. But I still very much identify as a Jew, uh, as do my children, and as does my wife, who converted from Catholicism to Judaism. Although she is a, a a Jew who very much believes in God, that's got to be intimidating. Also, because she probably knows everything, whereas like you kind of get this pass where it's like I'm Jewish and therefore I know things. And of course, I didn't. I you know uh, improvised my Torah portion. I made up the song. I thought that was great. You know, but to be married to someone who well, converts, I'm very impressed. Uh, <laughs> if you if you marry somebody who converts, though, they actually uh, learn these things later in life and paid attention. So I think it can be a little She did and she does, although I will have to say to give myself some credit that I have read the Bible. And I do know a, a, a good deal about Judaism because I've researched it a lot. And I went through her conversion with her. So we did that together. But yes, you're certainly uh, right that there's um, no zealot like the converted. And we light the Shabbos candles uh, as a family every Friday night, uh, which has been a wonderful tradition that my wife brought into uh, into our life, and I'm incredibly grateful um, to her for that. And I suppose I do, again, going back to the ancient thinkers, because I think that the deep traditions in Judaism that have to do with law, interpretation of law, and the value of custom and tradition as organizing, structuring principles in life still really obtain for me, whether one believes in God or not. Uh, I, I like structure, and I like time-tested laws, and I like exploring why they persist, and I'm very engaged in the way Judaism explores all that. And the central tenet of Judaism, tikkun olam, which is to repair the world, uh, is as valuably condensed an ethos as I could think of for how one could best live a life. I'm— Thank you for that. And I love the anonymous giving that people may not know is also a, a, the highest way to give in, in Judaism. And I know that your mother was an activist. Um, uh, she still is. And still is. I was active in Planned Parenthood. And we've had the fortune of having Cecile Richards on the show, amongst others. Um, I am so excited to see Socrates. I'm looking forward to it. And I really want to thank you for your, your time. And thank you for being an employee of the month. I am grateful to be here. And I enjoyed this very much. It was such a thrill to speak with Tim Blake Nelson, and I am running, not walking, to the public theater. I love supporting that theater, and I'm really excited to see Socrates, and I'm sure you are now as well, because, yeah, he really is just a, a brilliant gem. Our next guest is also a wonder. Jill Sobiel is a fantastic singer-songwriter. She has a new album out called Nostalgia Kills, and I'm sure you recognize her voice. Uh, she had the hit Supermodel, which was in Clueless, as well as I Kissed a Girl and several others. She's worked with Margaret Cho, Cindy Lauper, and Julia Sweeney. Here's my interview with Jill Solbiel. I'm glad to be here with Jill Sobiel. I You have a new album out called Nostalgia Kills. Yes. I wanted to hear what the impetus for Nostalgia Kills was. I mean, some of my favorite songs on your album are Island of Lost Things and I Don't Want to Wake Up, but 
before we get there, what what was the inspiration? You like the sad ones. Well, what can I tell well, yeah. you? <laughs> I know. I did. I, I mean, I, they're the always ones that make me growing up made me feel better. I th- I think that it was a a really rough couple of years for me. I mean, I had uh, stepfather, mother, pass, uh, bad breakup, um, and it really is so good for writing for me. Not that you have to be miserable to write, but it was an impetus. And and, um, I also started thinking about, uh, maybe it's getting older, thinking about my being nostalgic and thinking about, oh, there's something kind of wrong about this that I just spent four hours looking at old toy ads from the 70s. And um, I started writing from that. That's where the title came from, Nostalgic Hills. But there's something kind of nostalgic about the whole thing. It's it's really also at the same time, I've been working on a theater piece called Fuck Seventh Grade. So some of those songs are from there, looking back, you know, growing up, you know, having the miserable seventh grade to uh, to looking about about my life in the the last ten years. Well, I was which has been good. I don't want to say it's all sad, but it's easier to write the sad songs. Um, I I was particularly intrigued that you're doing this theater piece about uh, seventh grade because, you know, we were growing up at a time where being identifying not as, you know, stereotypical heteronormative was different genuinely to, to yeah. how do you how do you identify now how did you identify then I did I did want to hear about your experience well interesting because it starts pre 7th grade when I'm in say 6th grade I was the best rock guitar player in my neighborhood I mean I was And this is in Denver, Colorado. This is in Denver, Colorado and I remember you know, everyone thought I was a little badass, and I felt like a little badass. And I remember I also had a blue Raleigh chopper that was like a stingray. But all of a sudden, when I got to seventh grade, it was around that time period where all of a sudden, no, that that's a boy's bike. That's uncool. And all of a sudden, no, girls don't play like that. You should get a nice little folk guitar. And and all of a sudden, things changed over over the summer. And it wasn't okay to be this little rough tomboy. And, and uh, so that's where the play starts. And in and, and, and seventh grade, also, you were talking about uh, heteronormative. And yeah. um, I mean, I knew that there was something, you know, I had crushes on my girlfriends. And I, I knew I was a wise little kid. You know, I had older brothers. I, I knew that there was something kind of odd about me. And I knew about there's a gay thing. And, and it was horrible back then because this was in the 70s growing up in Denver. And, I mean, basically the the only role models I knew of were, uh, what's her name from the Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> the I don't Bayers, know, but I know what you're talking about. No, and, and Miss Newby, who was my gym teacher, who looked just like Pete Rose. Wow. Like today. And um, I'm, I'm just saying we didn't – I. It was a shameful thing. It was a. It's so amazing how it is today. And so, having well, to keep this secret and um, and not knowing how to come out to one another, you know that the the community oh, that was exists no community. now, right? Um, there was no community. So I, you, you kept it all to yourself, and uh, you know. And then I felt like. A stranger in a strange land. You know, my my friends say in sixth grade, all of a sudden they discovered boys and strawberry gloss, and they wanted to go to the mall all the time, and and I just wanted to uh, go home and play rock music and watch Watergate. <laughs> who doesn't? Want, who doesn't want to go home and watch Watergate? <laughs> it's actually quite. It's actually now a lot of people are revisiting Watergate. For, oh, I know. I, I for all the right reasons. Though. Yes, and and sadly, I um, had a Spiral Agnew watch. Oh wow! Oh, yeah. you were really. I still have it. Hardcore. I was hardcore. Um, you have these fantastic videos, and you know you've you've worked with so many famous people. You mentioned Cindy Lauper before, and and Margaret Cho, of course. You guys did this uh, San Fran. <laughs> excuse me for saying you guys. You you both you all did um, this wonderful video, San Fran, which accompanied your song. But I, I just wanted to ask you. You know, you're obviously multi talented as a visual artist to some degree to to create these videos. Well, I I just had uh, it wasn't just me. I worked with 
really talented people. I'd like to take credit for that, but I can't. I think coming from comedy and writing, there's not necessarily uh, – one can be a phenomenal writer but not necessarily have an aesthetic that you can um, fill a screen in the way that a film or a music video does. And so I think I was speaking to that, that you, you clearly have an artistic eye to know what you want to accompany uh-huh. your song. Thank you, except never look at my very first video. Okay. Called Too Cool to Fall in Love With. They just okay. made me, oh, it is the worst. It's so smooth, S-M-O-O-V-E. But when I had the chance and, uh, to co-create my own video, and I think that first one was the I Kissed a Girl one in 1995. I loved that song, and, and that was also, I believe, the first time that there was a song about a same-sex couple and coming from someone who is actually identifies, like, instead of being this sort of male gaze? Yeah, but it, it was it was a touchy, weird, weird time. I mean, when, when they decided to put out Kissed a Girl, and I didn't even think that that song would make the record. It was kind of a, a last-minute thing that uh, I thought, they're not going to want to put this on. But then they thought... Oh, this is, you know, this could be kind of flirty and funny, but they didn't want to go queer with it. It was that this is kind of a novelty hit. And that's that's the way. In fact, the video, which I loved, we were going to the very end. I was going to have the very first, I was going to have a kiss uh, with, with the woman in the song. And... I was kind of excited because she was, I had a crush on her. Anyway. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, it was, and at the very last moment, they cut it out and it ended up where I'm pregnant with Fabio's baby. But you moved all the way to pregnancy before you even got your kiss? I know. Well, yeah, they did show our kiss. Was Fabio, did he get the joke? Was he in on it? No, I remember. I was really sweet, but I remember when we had our meeting uh, and we thought, oh, he'd be the greatest male foil I leave you know, we wanted David Hasselhoff but he was too expensive so I remember what Fabio brought his manager with him and his manager and I was with the director and we were at this round table and he says you know we don't want to be promoting any kind of this isn't promoting any kind of homosexuality and the, the director and I are, are like gross Oh, no. Are you kidding? And she's kicking me under the table. And we're laughing. But he ended up being really sweet. And I ended up seeing him about five years ago at a friend's gym in West Hollywood, the Equinox in West Hollywood. And he came up to me, or I came up to him, I don't remember. He was really sweet. And he said if I joined the gym, he would spot me. So cute. (laughs) Did but, he get it by then, do you think? No, he never got it. <laughs> I don't think he really got it. I Kissed a Girl, I believe, went to the t- Billboard Top 20. Is that correct? I think it did. It was this m- massive hit. And so I think that, you know, nostalgia for anyone, everyone who ages, is a, a question that they have to grapple with. But you had these golden handcuffs of having these huge hits very early on in your career. And even though I know that you were performing long before that, but still, it, it's a particular challenge, I imagine. Well, that was a tough one because I didn't know. I mean, there really wasn't a before me. I, again, I didn't have a role model on how to deal with this. And I remember the very first time I got signed, this was a label before a couple years earlier. And I remember meeting everyone at the label and they were all making a joke about, oh, finally we found we signed a heterosexual female singer-songwriter because they were talking about uh, Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I have to, do I have to stay in the closet now? I mean, that was, that they assumed. And and so when I got to the, the new label with I Kissed a Girl again, they wanted to, I remember my big, uh, I got to be in Entertainment Tonight. But it, it was all about, with Fabio, and the, the discussion was, how was it to be with the hunkiest man in America? Hysterical. And, and it, was, uh, it was a tough thing because I didn't know. I wish I would have been. Now there's things I wish I would have been a little more bolder. But at that time, I want to say also that it was very binary. <laughs> you were either gay or you were straight. So I remember, you know, reading back then there were news groups. 
you know, uh, there was one gay music group and people were dissing me. I was either, you know, a, a, a heterosexual who was trying to get on a trend or else I was a gay woman who was saying she was bisexual as a cop-out. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a, I didn't know what I was getting into. Well, but I'm, 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 I'm grateful now, but... That's, that's why more and more people can take an inch forward and say, okay, I'm going to be brave here, and that's because someone before them was brave. <laughs> but, but it's really funny. Um, I was in Atlanta a few months ago, and there, I was walking across the park, and there were these two cute, High school looking age girls were like, you know, with the clipboards, you know, do you support gay rights? And I felt like, you know, old Betty Davis, you don't even know with the cigarette <laughs> hanging out. And I, I was like, yeah, yeah, I go, you know, I had a song called I Kissed a Girl even before the Katy Perry one. And they looked at me like I was mental. It's so funny it was, that they had yeah, no idea. They had no idea, but it was, you know, they had no idea. And I, so, but I sat down and talked with them for just about, uh, you know, the history of. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about the, the Katy Perry because in comedy, you know, there's been several cases of questions about plagiarism and more than inspired, I will say, of pe- people taking material. You know, there's times when people would have the same. Right. Idea, you know, or premise. But um, in comedy, there's, because of YouTube, I would say a positive is that people can even look <laughs> and see how this happens, you know, right, right. And, and question it in, in, a, in a thoughtful way, you know, and really sit down and, and have an honest conversation. In music, how is plagiarism treated now? And how are you feeling, you know, in, in hindsight, knowing that you created this groundbreaking song and then it came out in a different version from someone who was already a commercial brand. Yeah, hers was huge. Well, you can't copyright a a title. Like I could I could have uh it was funny when that came out I wanted to do a whole new album with song titles Let It Be Midnight at the Oasis. I mean, you really can't. And and hers was definitely a different kind of song, you know, so it wasn't plagiarizing myself. I didn't I didn't feel that way although it's really interesting because her A&R guy was mine. And he must have thought, hey, we had a hit with that, you know. And hers was, of course, much bigger. And, and there was the Kiss to Girl Wars, that, you know, yeah. I'd get. And it was, uh, you know, some people were like, oh, we like the old one. And, and you know, her, some people felt hers was more of a, you know, I'm doing this to to appeal to my boyfriend, and but but I'm sure that that was empowering for a lot of girls, you know, growing up too. Her songs, so you know, I, I can't uh, complain. Plus, here's the best part about it: was when that came out, there was a bunch of 14 or 15 year old girls who accidentally bought my song on iTunes. There you Hello. go. Hello, everyone profited. Everyone. Um, Jill Sobiel, this has been such a pleasure to have you on Employee of the Month. Yay! (laughs) Um, I want to recommend people who don't know you, although most people I I imagine do. But but for those who don't, please go check out uh, JillSobiel.com. You can check out her music, and she plays all over. She'll even come to your home. That's oh yeah, house concerts are really great. And and check out my Instagram because I do really really bad Photoshop. You are not alone because all of these colleges are accepting <laughs> kids who have been photoshopped into photos of them playing water polo. Who knows? Well, that was hysterical. I was so mad. I was like, my parents never never did these things for me. My parents don't know how to use Photoshop. Oh, my God. My, my, my parents were, you know, they were like, I could have gotten into better school. Totally. And they're like, they, they, did, they go, they would have. Photoshop to get me out of those schools so they didn't have to pay and I'd, you know, I'd stay at the state schools. Oh, yeah. Mine didn't even proofread my essays. They're like, good luck. Um, And we turned out okay. We turned out relatively sane. (laughs) Um, This has been such a treat. Thank you for being on Employee of the Month. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Tim Blake Nelson. Thank you to Jill Sobiel. Thank you to Cameron Drews for editing this together. And to all of you for listening, go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com to get on the mailing list to hear about future episodes as well as live editions. I'm Katie Lazarus. I hope you have a good one. Talk to you next week. <laughs>